Acts chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16 today. Uh, and this is a, another passage uh, that once again gives us a glimpse into early church life, what we call the apostolic church. And the question is, is uh, for us as a church, is how do we function as followers of Jesus? What does it mean uh, to be a community of faith? How are we representatives of Jesus as a community? And I think that this passage is powerful because it gives us insight uh, into how it is that we ought to live uh, as a community of faith. In spite of some of the crazy things that are occurring in this passage, I think that when we read between the lines and truly look at how the church is acting uh, in total yieldedness to the Spirit, I think that there are many things that we can learn uh, about how it is that we should be as a church. Before I read the passage, I just want to remind you that we live in a culture that has truly moved away from the need of community, that has moved away uh, from a strong, uh, even within evangelicalism, within Christianity, has moved away from a strong sense um, for community life, for life together. When I first got saved in 1999, uh, I think I was representative of how many Christians are, which is, for me, church was a secondary reality to just the desire for God to save me, to get me out of hell, to get me into heaven. And so I went to church for personal reasons. I wasn't interested in making friends. All I wanted to know was, how do I follow this Jesus? And so for me, it was very selfish and, and self-centered in its focus. It took me a couple of years before I began to recognize that in order to actually learn how to be a Christian, I had to actually do it with other people. Um, so private faith actually doesn't make sense from a biblical perspective. Uh, and so I want us to understand this, that the early church, its success and its ability to mature was hinged upon the, the followers of Jesus fulfilling his very command, they will know you are my disciples by what? Your love for one another. This is what the early church was about. And because of that, its witness was powerful. And so what I want us to do is look at some, some basic lessons that we can learn from this passage about what we should be desiring, what we should be expecting, and how we should be contributing uh, as followers of Christ uh, to the community in which God has called us. So beginning in verse 11, we covered this verse last week, but I want to utilize this verse to set up what follows. Remember, we looked at the judgment, the swift judgment of God upon Ananias and Sapphira at the very beginning of the church to show us that sin indeed has consequences, that God is a God who is just, and justice means that he will judge that which is unrighteous. And there was swift judgment upon these two individuals within the community of faith for actually lying to the Holy Spirit, for playing the part of the hypocrite, for lying to the community. And, and God utilized this judgment to inspire the church to come together in righteousness, that God does not save us into a vacuum so that we can continue in sin. But God saves us and gives us his Holy Spirit to set us free that we might begin to do what is right. He has given us all that is necessary to live from a source of victory and to live in the light of that victory. And remember, the gospel is a gospel of light. It's a gospel of truth. The spirit is a spirit of truth. And so to live in darkness is to go against the very purpose of the gospel. 
So look what it says. And great fear, in verse 11, came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And what was the outcome of this fear, this reverence, this awe? Look at the expectation. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. It's a strange verse. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to them, to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." Now, when we read this passage, what we immediately became struck with is, this, is the realm of the supernatural engaged in this. When we, you have shadow healing, okay? And so we're actually going to backlight me, and I'm going to cast shadows on you doing shadow puppet healing. Uh, <laughs> okay, you know, we don't, this isn't normative. I've never met anyone that's been healed by a shadow. Actually, the text doesn't tell us that anyone was actually healed from Peter's shadow. What it does show us, and here's the thing is that I want us to begin to look at, is what you see here, we shouldn't be so caught up in the exact things that the Spirit was doing, but what we should be caught up in is the absolute yieldedness of the community of faith to the authority of Jesus as Lord and to the filling of the Spirit, giving God the sovereign right to be God in and through their lives. I think this is super important because the church is exploding and the witness of the gospel is being testified to by the working of signs and wonders through the hands of the apostles. What we see happening right here in Acts chapter 5, verses 11 through 16, is nothing different than the very things that Jesus did while he was alive and walked on the earth. So what we see here are secondary agents, the apostles and the followers of Christ literally being conduits by which Jesus continues the same work that he did when he was alive. It's powerful. And so we can make this about healing, we can make this about signs and wonders, but we can miss the importance of a community that is living by faith with an expectancy that Jesus is going to move. He's going to make himself known through the community. So here is what I want us to see. Because it begins with a very powerful verse. Remember, all of this is the fulfillment of the very thing that the church prayed for just a couple chapters earlier. When Peter and John are released from prison, they go back to the, to the community of faith. They share all that had happened. And the church began to pray that God would be glorified, that the gospel would go forth, that they would have the boldness to proclaim Jesus, and that he would bring forth signs and wonders to testify to the truth of who, of who he is. And this is exactly what happened. We need to remember that even the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira is the fulfillment of that prayer. And here we see the further fulfillment. It's not just a prayer for boldness, but that God would be magnified, uh, literally, that we would be conduits by which you can do whatever you want to make your name known. And so here we see that it begins with a fear. And I want us to be reminded here, Hebrews 2.3 tells us something that's really important. And I kind of want to establish this teaching with this verse. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What does that mean? What does it mean to neglect our salvation? I would argue that we neglect our salvation when we neglect our responsibility to live out the gospel in the context of community. 
The only way that salvation can be fully experienced and known and, and even witnessed to is directly in correspondence to our commitment to one another as a community of faith and as the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. The church is the body. We are the bride of Christ. And so we will never have assurance of, of working out our salvation with fear and trembling unless we do it in the context of community. And here's what I see um, as the first mark of the church working out in a healthy way this idea of its salvation. The fear of the Lord, first thing I want us to note that is a lesson for us as a church today. The fear of the Lord leads to boldness before man. One of the reasons the church is so ineffective today And the reason that we actually find ourselves neglecting so great a salvation is that our fear of others, of the community, of the world, of the culture around us, far surpasses our fear of our great creator God. Our fear of mankind often trumps our fear of Jesus Christ. I think this is important to note because Jesus himself said this, In Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 to 28, he says, so have no fear of them, that is anyone who persecutes you for being my followers, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed. There will be a day of judgment for everything or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul Rather, and this is a very intense uh, word from Jesus himself, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, here is the thing that we see in this passage in Acts chapter 5 that's very much in line with Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 to 28. Notice where the people are. The people are all gathered together in the temple. Now, when we think of the temple, the Jewish temple in this first century, we often think of a church, but the temple actually took up acres. There were giant courtyards. It was actually a huge, huge place with multiple buildings that allowed huge gatherings of people. And it was still considered, even to the early church, the house of the Lord. Remember what it says? They gathered daily from house to house and in the temple. And here they are, the entire community. How many people were a part of the community of faith by this point? We don't know exact number, but it was approximately 5,000 plus. So 5,000 people are gathered in a public space. Their fear of God has actually created a freedom from the fear of what the world can do. Because Peter and John have already been told what? To no longer preach in the name of who? Jesus. And they are being threatened with being put in prison, Jesus himself has already been put to death. So the followers of Jesus know that it's a risky business to follow Jesus. But here's the thing, is that the the reality, the actuality of God's very manifest presence by his Holy Spirit being witnessed through the community of faith actually created a reverential fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord actually is the only fear that can cast out all other fears that plague us on a daily basis. I think it's important for us to see this in this particular text because we are often so plagued by so many fears, our witness is null and void. We're afraid of what people might think if they find out that we're followers of Jesus. 
We meet in public spaces, and when we talk about our faith over lunch, we talk loudly, but the moment you mention Jesus, you want to whisper it. But the fact is, is that Jesus himself said, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. A church that is truly living out an apostolic faith, that is an effective witness, is a church whose fear of God surpasses any fear that can come at us through this world. And I think it is important for us to understand that. The fear of the Lord is the only thing that leads to boldness. It doesn't mean that God eradicates our fear. It means that our love of God overrides those fears. That I'm more fearful of God's judgment than I am of what you might think of me, which makes me get up here every week. And here's the thing. When we think of the fear of the Lord, it's not a fear that causes us to run away from him. It's a fear of offending a good and gracious God. What radically transformed these people's lives was not the fear of hellfire. It was that the kindness of God leads people to repentance, that God actually reaches into the hell of our lives and saves us through through his son, Jesus. And so I always say that the the way to think of the fear of the Lord is it has to be balanced with an understanding of God as love. And so what do you have uh, on a tightrope? In order to walk on a tightrope, you have to have the balancing stick. And I always say that on one side is fear and the other side is love. And the fear of the Lord keeps us on the narrow path. The love of God keeps us moving forward toward the goal. And I think that this combination of recognizing what we see in the early church was a recognition of divine presence to the point where it helped them overcome the fears of of real potential threats for proclaiming the good news of Jesus. The fear of the Lord leads to boldness before a world that is against our God. We need to understand that. And that is one mark of a healthy church. It's a recognition of divine presence. You know that every revival, every revival, that true revival that's ever happened in, in church history, it's not that God is doing anything different than he's always doing. It's just God's presence being, it's, it's a magnified reality of his presence. And one of the things that, that happens when revival breaks out is that there is this overwhelming sense of God's nearness. And the closer we are to God, the more we become aware of our own brokenness, our own inadequacy, our own need. And I think that God was manifesting himself. This is, this is revival that's happening in these passages. And this is what I want for our church. And what I think is that we, are, we take God too casually. We, don't, we forget that the Jesus that we worship is the God who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. The one in scriptures where we're told that there will be a day when every knee shall bow to Jesus as Lord. That he has defeated the dominions of darkness. That he is Christ the victor. And I think that we need to take that very seriously. Because God is a God who loves us and he has called us to be free from the tyranny of the fear of this world. He wants to create in us a boldness as a community of faith that requires a recognition of divine presence. And my prayer over the mornings of our, our morning's prayer is that God would manifest his presence in such a tangible, palatable way that we cannot ignore the fact that we are worshiping one who is the source of all truth. He is the source of life. He is the source of hope. And our existence needs to be built upon him as a foundation, not upon the false promises of this world. 
Look at secondly, I think this is important because not only do we see the fear of the Lord leads to a boldness in this early church, a boldness to actually put their lives at risk for the purpose of witnessing to the truth of who Jesus is, but we see that devotion to Jesus meant commitment to one another. This is important for us to understand in our modern context. As I share with you, when I first got saved, I thought a commitment to Jesus meant Jesus changing my life. I didn't recognize that the way that Jesus transforms my life is by making me other-oriented. And what we see in the early church, notice, as these great signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles, they were all together in one place, Solomon's portico. So here they were in this open temple all together. And the witness of that is what actually was bringing about the radical, massive amounts of conversions. I think this is important for us to see because in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, and it's especially important for us to see in the context in which we live today, it says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews tells the church, listen, as persecution intensifies, the only way to actually stand fast in your faith is to maintain a commitment to God's people. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. But here we continue to live in this, in this era in which we truly treat the gathering together as a community of faith as something that is optional to human existence. That I can somehow be a follower of Jesus on my own without the community of faith. The only way that you can grow in spiritual gifts is in the context of others. Don't we understand that the essence of the gospel and the essence of salvation is a restoration of relationships in three directions? A right relationship with God leads to a right relationship with others. And finally, and it must always be last, only then can we begin to have a right understanding and relationship with ourselves. Now, this is important. I was having a conversation recently uh, with John Mark Comer from Bridgetown. I also was talking with Rick McKinley about this. I've talked with A.J. Swoboda I've talk, um, from Theophilus. I talked with uh, Chuck Bomar from Colossae, and what we're seeing uh, around the churches in Portland, Evan, the strong gospel-centered churches, and then even having a conversation with Mark Sayers, who we had guest speak here um, several months back, who's from Australia, from Melbourne, read, he said, hey, listen, when people want to know what it is that they can do to be serving the church, it's sad that we're in an age where the, the, the first thing we should be telling them is, you know, it'd be helpful if you just showed up. That attendance actually has diminished. And all the pastors I've talked to, we have seen a decrease in regular attendance in church. And what's fascinating to me is that that decrease in, in, in attendance has not been a decrease in numbers of those who would say Door of Hope is my home church or Imago Day is my home church or Bridgetown because we look at the children's records of who we have come in. And here's the fascinating thing. Mark was telling me that we had over 350 kids, different kids, come in through the church in one month. On an average Sunday, though, we never have more than like 180 to 200 at the most. And what that tells us is that the average attendance of most people that call Door of Hope their home church, and I would say that this is across the board with my friends' churches as well, is that most people attend church once to twice a month, if that. And what that speaks to is the rise of individualism, that, that the community of faith, the gathering of saints, which Scripture commands recognizing that there is no spiritual growth apart from growth together, our second pillar, is that we no longer actually value that or believe that or we continue to give other things precedence. And believe me, I know there's a multitude of reasons why people can't make it. I also recognize that we're in a baby booming moment in the church. 
and babies can be really lame for church attendance. I understand that. But listen, we can also utilize valid reasons to become invalid excuses. Now, just know this. I want you to know that I'm not coming down hard on you because I started a church because I knew that if I didn't actually become the lead pastor, I wouldn't go. So listen, I, I can't really point fingers, you know. I do 22 days of prayer because I'm not going to pray without you, so I have to set myself up so I have to do it. That's how I roll. Um, but all of us, but that's the point, is I need you, and you need me, and we need each other. We're a community, and the power of the gospel is found when we do it together. Do you know that, that every time you see these great stories of evangelistic events, like Billy Graham speaking in Times Square, Hundreds of thousands of people. Do you know what made those things successful? Was it the anointing upon Billy Graham? That was a a small portion of it. God for sure used him as a catalyst, but it was actually, and this is true, I've talked with Luis Palau about this, when he does these great, giant, uh, evangelistic events where hundreds of thousands of people come. It's because the churches, whenever an an evangelist goes into these cities, the same with clear back to D.L. Moody with John Wesley, to George Whitfield, there was always thousands and thousands of believers at these events. And it was the witness of the community of faith that actually became a catalyst for the non-believers within those crowds to actually come to faith. If Billy Graham was just speaking to primarily, to only non-believers, the effectiveness of his message would not be there. Because one of the things that witnesses to the reality of what we're saying is that when a non-believer comes in, which there are some in here right now, is that why are all of you here in agreement with me? Because we are one body, and it is the Spirit of God within all of us that testifies to the authenticity of Jesus. If I preached to an empty room, it wouldn't be a very compelling message. Come be a part of our family. Where's the family? I'm your family. That's creepy. That's not what you want. That's why even evangelism in the public square, I always think that it's actually actually a faulty idea that you can go out by yourself and preach at the pagans. And often that message is a message of hellfire, and, and, and you're like, and why are people avoiding that person like the plague? And they'll say, because I'm preaching the truth. No, because everything in the Christian life is meant to be done communally. It's about res- restoration of relationships with one another. The early church understood this, and it was very much connected to its success. They had a reverence and a recognition of a holy God who is present a God who hated sin, but he loved sinners. A God who took care of sin upon the cross through his son Jesus. And the presence of Christ was felt and experienced tangibly by the very very personal reality of the Holy Spirit. And that reverence led to a boldness. And the boldness increased the devotion to Jesus, which was played out in a direct commitment to one another. The corresponding evidence of your devotion to Jesus is defined by your commitment to your community of faith. You can't live as a Christian and reject the responsibility to care for others. It's not possible. And it begins within the community of faith before it can truly expand out to the world. In fact, every time I've tried to see, I've seen Christians try to live out the gospel in a non-believing world without other Christians, the non-believing world seems to win. And this is why even Bonhoeffer said, there may, do not, Take for granted the gift of grace that the church is because there may be a day where it's taken away from you. He wrote that from prison before he was hung. I think that this is important. 
So these two realities I see being played out in the early church, a fear of the Lord that led to boldness and a devotion to Jesus that led to a commitment not only to him but to one another. But I think this is, this is important as well to see. The third reality that we, need must, we must recognize as a church and accept as a church is that the gospel divides. This is important because this goes back to even that, the, the fear of man, which is a snare. Notice what it says when it, in verse, I think it's in verse 13, it says, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Now, who is this none of the rest? Clearly, there were, there were many non-believers all around, and they're seeing the actuality of God's presence being manifested through these apostles as many signs and wonders were done by the hands of the apostles. And many people are coming to faith, but there's also an increasing tension happening within Jerusalem at this moment in the church's history where as many are getting saved, there is an oppressiveness and a, and a, and a refusal to believe that is also increasing. What was it? Notice Jesus, when he preached and when he went about doing good and healing and casting out demons and doing all these incredible things, did everybody love him? No. In fact, the more powerfully he worked, the more powerfully he represented the Father, the more they hated him until ultimately they silenced him. But they couldn't silence the author of life, could they? And here... They can't get rid of Jesus because now he's being manifested through the church. But what we need to understand is this. In our modern context, not only have we rejected the call to be committed to one another, and I just want to just really quickly just state that. If you are a person who is spotty in your attendance for no good reason, stop. You want to know how you can serve Door of Hope? Be committed. Show up. Because our witness, we gather together as a community of faith on Sunday to be, I'm not saying this so that the that every seat's full. I'm saying this because I believe that the more we are together, unified in our desire to see Jesus proclaimed, there is power in the gathering to make the gospel known. And I believe that it is something that God commands of us. We need to be committed to one another. Join a community group. Make it a priority. Don't put it off as a secondary thing. The life of the Christian is, a, is one who lives in service to Christ which means we are committed not only to him, but to one another. But here, I think that this is important because the message of the church is an uncomfortable one. It is one that brings life to many, but it also divides. In fact, Jesus himself said this. He said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39, he said, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I watched a, a debate I've shared before between uh, uh, John Lennox uh, and Christopher Hitchens. Uh, and in this debate, Christopher Hitchens tried to utilize this verse to say that Christianity supports violence. And John Lennox quickly uh, corrected him and said that is a complete uh, out-of-context use of that verse. For Jesus never promoted physical violence, but what he does recognize, and Lennox went on to quote more of the verse to show that Jesus is saying that his gospel, the message of his saving life is going to create division. And this is something that we have to be comfortable with because what we see in our modern context is not only a rejection of a, of a call to be committed to one another, a fear of man over a fear of the Lord, but we also see an increasing temptation to uh, to make our gospel sacri- to, to make it to make it safe, 
to remove the teeth from it, to take away the things that were uncomfortable from it. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, and you're like, I don't like bread. I'd rather present Jesus as a pastrami sandwich. And it's the thing is that we decorate up the gospel and we try to get rid of the things that we're uncomfortable with. Oh, oh, you don't like hell? Let's get rid of that doctrine. You don't like sin? Get rid of that. Demons, that's embarrassing. The devil, really? Okay, listen, once you get rid of all these things, and I've shared this before, you think that it's less weird to believe that God became a man, took on the brokenness of humanity, and that somehow mysteriously, supernaturally took all of that into himself through his murder on the cross of Calvary, and that three days after he died, rose from the dead, and then was seen by his followers, ascended into the heavens to take his rightful seat as the Lord of Lord and King of Kings next to the Father, and then sends his Holy Spirit to fill us. You're like, that part's not weird. Listen, you're a fool in the world's eyes because it says the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. And every time we try to diminish the parts of the gospel that we're uncomfortable with, we don't like the ethics of Jesus. We don't like the commands that he puts upon our lives. What we do is every time we remove a piece of the truth of the gospel, what we lose is Jesus. And we're left with an empty shell of religion. And Jesus kills religion and brings forth relationship. But that relationship is dependent and defined by him as the truth, as he declared himself to be. The early church did not waver in its commitment to the scriptures. The word of God is true. It has withstood the test of time. Are there uncomfortable things within the Bible? Absolutely. But should we be apologizing for the gospel? Why do you think that our witness stinks so often? Because we spend so much time apologizing for all the things that we think people are offended by that we never actually get to the thing that can save them. May we be a people that proclaim Jesus with boldness, not because, not because we want to be offensive. We proclaim the gospel because we believe it actually saves people, that it changes our lives. And we wouldn't be afraid to preach the gospel if we actually believed it changed our lives. And so here's the thing I think that we have to see within the early church is this is absolute fearlessness before man because they feared the Lord. An absolute devotion to Jesus, which meant a total commitment to one another. And finally, a recognition that the gospel divides, and that's okay because we aren't called to convince people. We're just simply called to be conduits by which the witness of Jesus goes forth. We're just called to be witnesses. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. People need to know that Jesus loves them. And I think that often our fear of, of being the witnesses that God has called us to be is actually keeping people that are ready to come out of the kingdom. It's like Jesus' condemnation of the religious leaders. You care so much about the opinions of man that you actually are putting up walls to the very listeners. You're keeping them from God. And I want us to be a people that invite, I want us to be a door of hope. I want us to be a place where people who are hurting and are lonely, and are sick, and are bogged down with sin. I want them to experience liberation and freedom, and they need to see that freedom played out in our lives. But if we reject the truth to accommodate the culture, we will never bring freedom. We will only bring further slavery. May we not drag the name of Christ in the mud. Jesus didn't come to bring peace on earth. He came to bring a sword. And listen to these hard words. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies. 
will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When we see here that there were many people that kept the, they were, they were in awe of what was happening, but they would not enter in, it's because they saw played out in the community of faith before them the costliness of the gospel, that these people, their lives and existences were hinged upon this Jesus. And so many people stood at a distance and said, I'm not ready to give up my life. And many of you have experienced the costliness of the gospel. Many of you have experienced the pain of telling your family that you've come to faith in Jesus and to have them reject that reality. Listen, this is why we need one another. And just know that it may say that there were many that none of the rest dared join, but what does it go on to say immediately after that? that? More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. So there's the third lesson. The gospel divides. And we, not, we, may not, we don't need to be afraid of that. And then finally, this is the part that I, I want us to finally finish on, is that the spirit... For the church to be healthy, the spirit needs to be free. What I mean by that is this. John chapter three, verse eight, Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. When we look at these passages here um, and many of the stories in Acts and even in the gospels, we ask the question, uh, well, why aren't there more signs and wonders um, happening in our midst? Uh, and should this be exactly the same? Should I be able to cast a shadow on you and Jesus uses it to bring healing? Here's the thing that I, I think is important for us to see because it says that all these people, they, they brought their sick, they brought those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed. But I think that the picture that we have here in Acts is not meant to be prescriptive because great movements of the spirit, the thing that I've noted um, when you look at historical revivals is that the spirit moves differently. And what he needs is a yielded community that gives him the freedom to move as he sees fit. When Martin Luther stood up to the Catholic Church, one man against an empire, and said, the only way to be saved is by faith in Jesus Christ. It is through grace. That revolutionized Christianity. It divided. The gospel divided right there. And it put one man against the world, essentially, and God, through that man, brought forth an, an entire reformation that changed the face of Europe and the world. We're sitting here because of that. The thing that was not happening during this great movement of the Spirit was signs and wonders. What there was was the Spirit bringing about a, a new desire to the Scriptures and opening people up to the truth of the gospel, and it was radically transforming entire communities. So, so which is it? Is it, does Jesus, by his spirit, bring healing and signs and wonders and raise people from the dead, casting shadows over people? Later, you'll see Paul, people are trying to get their hands on handkerchiefs. They might be healed if Paul had touched it. And what I would say is that the spirit does what he wants, and the key is not, what will the spirit do? The key is, are you yielded to whatever it is that he has for you? Because I believe that the Spirit very well can bring healings. And I've been healed personally. I've had a supernatural healing in my life. I've seen God heal others. 
Do I believe that God could raise someone from the dead? Sure, if he wants to. But here's the thing. When you turn this into a prescriptive thing where he says that unless, and if you don't believe that God, uh, or excuse me, uh, there's no place for sickness in the church, that truly uh, Bible-believing, faith-believing Christians should expect to see healing always. It's an evidence of the gospel. And there are many within Christendom today that believe that. And I would argue, well, first of all, the pro- the, why that's problematic theologically is that even if God heals you, you're still going to die unless Jesus comes back. We need to recognize that healings and signs and wonders were always meant to point us to ultimate healing, which is yet to come in the new heaven and the new earth and the hope of resurrection. All of these things were meant to actually bring support to the witness of the gospel. And this is why I believe that we tend to see greater levels of miracles, true signs, wonders, visions, words of knowledge in places where the scriptures are not available. And here's the thing, is is God's word and his gospel enough for you? Do you need a miracle to believe in Jesus? Believe me, there is no greater miracle than the new birth. And so I say very open-handedly, when we pray in the mornings, when I pray over you, I pray that God would raise up prophets in our, in our community. I pray that, he, pray that he give you visions, words of knowledge. I pray for those who are sick that they would be healed. Man, I'd love to see someone raised from the dead. That'd be rad. But all I can say is this. I believe that God is capable of any of those things. But I also will say this as just as fervently and just as passionately. Jesus is enough, and whatever he wants to do is fine with me because I'm just grateful I have him. And the great miracle that I pray for over this church more than any other thing is a supernatural awareness of just how much he loves you. That's what you need more than anything. He may heal you of one sickness, but man, I don't know about you. I've been sick three times in, in one month over the last month. He could, I think he healed this last week's sickness, but Man, he let me suffer through a stomach flu right after Christmas. So, I mean, that doesn't sustain me. What sustains me is the hope of a resurrected body and an eternity with him face to face who loves me with an everlasting love, who never promised me a trouble-free existence, but did promise that he would be with me forever, that he would never leave me or forsake me. And so I believe that what is necessary as a church today is that we allow the spirit, the freedom to move through us however he sees fit, and that we live as a church with expectancy that God is going to show up and he's going to show up powerfully. This is what we need, church. We need a fear of the Lord that eradicates the fear of this culture, of this world, of humanity. We need a devotion to Jesus that leads to a true commitment to one another. We need to lift up a message that is the truth no matter how hard it is, and recognize that God is responsible for the results and the scriptures tell us it's gonna divide. And if it doesn't divide, then it's a different gospel, honestly. And finally, we need to give the spirit the freedom to manifest the presence of Jesus through our lives, which requires yielded hearts and minds. May Jesus be glorified in all that we do, amen?